remain standing for the gospel lesson, also the sermon text as we pick up where we left off in the book of John, chapter 8, starting in verse 37. This is the gospel of God. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar. And the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear, because you are not of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear your word, and to believe the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Your ancestry matters. In September of 1874, an unusual, unprecedented gathering took place in New England. Nearly 500 descendants of Jonathan Edward poured into the resort town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, for a family reunion. Jonathan Edwards, who was perhaps the greatest American theologian of all time, had died over a century earlier in 1758. And now, 116 years later, 1874, hundreds of his descendants were gathered for a family reunion. They had lunch under a huge tent provided by Yale University, where Jonathan had served as president. And they admired memorabilia from the Edwards family, Sarah's dress, They walked around the house. That family reunion teamed with professors, 
business executives, government officials, ministers, and according to one account, women of unusual beauty and force of personality. The mood of the reunion was set, expressed by the initiator of the gathering when he said, let God be praised for such a man. His remarks were followed by many laudatory speeches that excited the descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. One writer said that it was as proud a celebration of ancestry as has ever been held in America. A study by the New York Genealogical and Historical Society says probably no two people married since the beginning of the 18th century have been progenitors, ancestors, of so many distinguished persons as were Jonathan Edwards and Sarah, his wife. 26 years later, in 1900, a man by the name of A.E. Winship did a study of Edwards's descendants, and the results have become somewhat famous, well-known. Winship concluded that from that single union of Jonathan and Sarah came 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 100 lawyers and a dean of an outstanding law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and a dean of a medical school, and 80 holders of public office, among them three United States senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, and a vice president of the United States. Winship concluded, there is scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of this family among its chief promoters. The family has cost the country nothing in pauperism, in crime, in hospital or asylum service. On the contrary, it represents the highest usefulness. End quote. So what are we to conclude from this? Well, one obvious conclusion is that having an industrious, godly ancestry is to one's advantage. But there's another statistic about the family that is rarely mentioned. In 1756, Jonathan and Sarah's daughter, Esther, gave birth to a boy. This is how Esther described her son, Jonathan's grandson, when he was a toddler. She says, He is very sly and mischievous. He has more sprightliness than Sally, his sister. Handsomer, but not so good-tempered, very resolute, and requires a good governor to bring him to terms. Now, this could be written about a lot of children, perhaps. But these words were written about Aaron Burr, the man who killed another man in an illegal duel and who plotted to crown himself as emperor of Mexico and to establish his own dynasty there. Aaron Burr who was known for seeking his own honor and glory, was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, who is known for seeking the honor and glory of God in his life, in his ministry, in his teachings, in his writings. So we see that while a godly heritage is of inestimable, inestimable value, it doesn't guarantee spiritual health. Godly ancestors don't guarantee godly descendants. Many of us have had godly parents. 
And for some of us, our godly heritage, ancestry goes back many generations. Some of you may have had ancestors who, like Jonathan Edwards, were involved in shaping the, the, the world's religious thought and defending the Christian faith. If so, you owe them a great debt, and you should, most of all, give thanks and glory to God. But our heritage can be a blessing or a curse. A blessing if we live consistently with that heritage, but a curse if we throw it away and live for ourselves instead of for God and bring glory to ourselves instead of to God. That's why John 8, verses 37 to 47 is a key passage of Scripture. It deals with people who have, who have an outstanding heritage and yet who are not living consistently within it. They've come to false conclusions about their heritage that are detrimental to their spiritual health. In this passage, Jesus sets them straight, but He also provides the standard by which we can diagnose our own spiritual health. When the event recorded in this passage took place, Jesus had been addressing the Jews aggressively. In verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. And the implication in the rest of this context is that his hearers were in darkness and therefore lost. In verse 23, Christ spoke to them straightforwardly. He said, you are from below, beneath. I am from above. And he follows it up with something even more direct in verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In verse 32, Jesus exhorts the Jews who have superficial faith in him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples truly. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The Jews respond in verse 33 by insisting that They're already free. Indeed, because we're descendants of Abraham, father of the faith, we've never been enslaved to anyone or anything. But their slave master, Jesus goes on to say, is the sin that we all inherit from our first father, Adam, and that they were still enslaved to in every sense. Jesus says in verse 34, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So as we come to verses 37 and 38, Jesus takes the gloves off. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. Yet I am telling you that I have seen In the Father's presence. What I have seen in the Father's presence. And you do what you have heard from your Father. See, these Jews are relying on their physical ancestry as the offspring of Abraham. Instead of practicing the faith of Abraham, they depend on being the descendants of Abraham. They had assumed that because of their heritage, they were born of God, children of God. 
this misunderstanding of how God's salvation works, how His covenant works, had grave consequences for these people. Their failure to live by living faith meant that they were self-deceived and that their spiritual heritage was not at all what they thought it was. Look again at those unsettling words at the end of verse 38. You do what you have heard from your father. Who's their father? Well, it's not God. Jesus touched a sensitive nerve here. And the Jews responded just as he knew they would. The first part of verse 39 records their response. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Four words. That's, that's the only, that was enough of an answer for them. Abraham is our father. The common belief at that time was that Abraham was so godly and, and had stored up so, so, such a vast treasury of merit that if his descendants would draw upon it, they would attain righteousness. And during the second century, less than a hundred years after John wrote this gospel, there was a Christian apologist named Justin Martyr. And Justin had a well-known dialogue with an educated Jew named Trypho. And in his dialogue, Justin points out that Trypho, as a Jew, believes that eternal salvation will be given to the bloodline descendants of Abraham, even if they are sinners, unbelievers, and disobedient toward God. And Trypho doesn't deny that he believes this. He accepts it as his belief. This was the mentality of the Jews during this time. No wonder Jesus, I'm sorry, no wonder the Jews responded to Jesus confidently with the words, Abraham is our father. Abraham was their security. Let's keep reading in verse 39. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You do the deeds of your father. So here again, he calls calls out who their father is. Not by name yet, though. Abraham lived in a pagan, idolatrous world. But when he heard the truth, by God's grace, he responded with faith. And then obedience. The obedience of faith. That was his distinguishing mark. We read Genesis 15.6 as as, at the end of our Old Testament lesson. It says, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted in Yahweh and Yahweh counted it, that faith to him. He imputed it to him as righteousness. And what kind of faith did Abraham have? It's Abram still in Genesis 15. What kind of faith did Abraham have? James 2 tells us that he had a living faith. Turn in your Bibles to the book of James. And we're going to look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Hebrews 11 is famously called the faith chapter. But James 2 is also important because it tells us what kind of 
faith we must have to be saved. You see, not any faith will do. Mere belief, assent to the truth that God is real and that Jesus is God's Son will not save you. Just, just knowing that it's true, believing that it's true, saying that it's true will not save you. Your faith in Christ must be a living, active, obedient faith. Look at James 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And now skip down to verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's dead. Verse 20. Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or complete. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by a faith that is all alone. Make sure you see what James is saying in verse 23. The passage from Genesis 15, which says that Abraham was justified by faith, he trusted God and God counted that to him as righteousness. That statement from Genesis 15, 6 was fulfilled, James says, when Abraham followed it up with living, active, obedient, responsive faith throughout his life. The Hebrews 11 gives a, another example of how he did this. Not a sinless faith, but a working faith. Not a flawless faith, but a fruitful faith. If your faith in Jesus doesn't produce fruit, it's not a living faith. Faith without fruit is like a fruit tree branch without fruit, it's dead lifeless. Jesus says in John 15 that on the day of judgment, all the dead branches in the church, on the vine, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Is there any fruit in your faith? Any fruit coming out of your faith? Are you a fruit-bearing branch on the vine of Christ? Is there any evidence that you are Christian? Is your faith living like Abraham's or dead like these covenant members that Jesus is talking to in John chapter 8? Abraham heard the truth. He took it to heart. And then he became faithful. Not perfectly faithful. You just read the rest of the book of Genesis and you see that he wasn't perfect. He wasn't without sin even after he put his faith in God in Genesis 15. But he was faithful. He was growing in the grace of God by faith. The Jews confronting Jesus lack this kind of faith that produces faith.
faithfulness. Their faith was not working together with their works, as James puts it. Rather than accepting the truth, they were trying to murder the truth. They were physical descendants of Abraham, but they were not spiritual descendants of Abraham. Their faith didn't look like Abraham's because it didn't live like Abraham's. You see, it's possible to be the descendant of a godly line and yet not have eternal life. It's possible to be baptized and yet be dominated by lust and idolatry. It's possible to eat spiritual food and drink spiritual drink and yet fail to preserve in the truth. This is what happened to Israel in the wilderness. What I just said there, those examples, I didn't make those up out of of thin air. I pulled those from 1 Corinthians 10. It It was a summary of 1 Corinthians 10, which itself is a summary of Israel's history in the wilderness. Turn again in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians 10 is where Paul uses Israel as an example to us, to the church, to warn us against falling away from faithfulness to Jesus. Because after all, they were baptized. They ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to start in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And Psalm 77 says that cloud poured out water on them as they walked through. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For, that, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock that followed them was Christ, Paul says in verse 4. They were participating in, partaking of Christ. Verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. These are the kinds of warnings that we see throughout the Scriptures. And 
It's what Jesus is trying to tell these covenant members listening to him and opposing him in various ways. Doesn't doesn't work just to just to have a good ancestry. You can still you can eat of Christ. Spiritual food, spiritual drink, baptism. And fall into lust and idolatry and complaining, murmuring, as the Israelites did. I have two questions for everyone here. This is for every single person. And especially, though, for those of you who have grown up in the church, in the covenant. Those of you who were baptized at a young age and who have been eating at the Lord's, at the Lord's table for as long as you can remember. Children, these questions apply to you in a particular way. They're simple questions, but they're important. And this text drives us to ask them. Number one, have you entrusted yourself conducting your life? How are you conducting your life? Have you entrusted yourself to Christ personally? And are you growing in that? And how are you living? How are you conducting your life? According to Jesus, this is how you determine your true ancestry. A great spiritual heritage is to be highly valued. But if it's not appropriated and made real in your heart, in your mind, and in your life, it becomes a curse. The thing that matters is your faith in Jesus, working together with your good works, as James says. The teaching of Jesus here, in essence, is if you are Abraham's child, do the deeds of Abraham. There must be something spiritually substantive in your life. Is there? Everyone has one of two spiritual fathers, God or the devil. All of us do what we do and think what we think and say what we say and believe what we believe on the basis of our spiritual father, on the basis of who our spiritual father is. Jesus makes it clear who his father is. It's God the father. He also makes it clear who their father is. And John invites his readers to ask the question, who is my father? Remember, to answer that question, you've got to answer the two questions I've already asked. Have you entrusted yourself to Christ personally? In other words, do you have a personal connection to Jesus? Number two, how are you conducting your life? Which father's deeds are you doing? Is your life in line with your confession? In verse 41 of John 8, back to John 8 now. In verse 41, Jesus tells the hard-hearted Jews, you do the deeds of your father. This is the most offensive accusation Jesus could have advanced against them. There was nothing worse than accusing them of not having God as their father. 
Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father. It's God. What are you talking about? And now they're just insulting Jesus. When they say, We weren't born of fornication, they're indirectly accusing Jesus of being born of fornication. They've heard the rumors about how Mary got pregnant out of wedlock, not by Joseph. And they take the opportunity to point out that he might be an illegitimate son, but they are true sons of God. They have one father, and they know who it is. It's God. But Jesus isn't persuaded by their divine trump card. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Their actions prove that they have severed themselves from God. The evidence is in their treatment of God's son. And that's always an indicator of where somebody is with God. It's easy to be sentimental when we meet somebody who seems to have a genuine faith and they seem to be a nice person. And they confess faith in God, even in the scriptures, but they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But the indicator that someone knows God and is right with God and, is, and believes in God is that they know Jesus and love Jesus and understand that he was sent from the Father. Rather than trying to kill him, they should love him. Rather than trying to do away with him, to cast him aside, they should be embracing him and trusting themselves to him. Now, the term love in verse 42, it doesn't just mean an emotional affection, something like that, that that's involved, but it primarily means allegiance, commitment, obedience. Later in chapters 14 and 15, Of John's gospel. You don't have to turn there. But we'll get there eventually. Jesus will say things like this. If you love me. Keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments. And keeps them is the one who loves me. Jesus replied. If anyone loves me. He will keep my word. My father will love him. And we will come to him. And make our home in him. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. John himself says the same sorts of thing in his epistles in 1 John and 2 John. Again, don't turn there, just listen. Here's what John says. By this we can be sure that we have come to know God, Jesus, if we keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So you see the connection between love and obedience. Your love for Jesus should no doubt be a personal, intimate, even we could say emotional experience. But according to scripture, true love will manifest itself 
in allegiance and commitment and obedience to Jesus, submitting yourself to him and his commandments. These opponents of Jesus are incapable of obedience. They are unable to hear the truth. It's not that they're physically unable to hear Jesus. They're, the, the ears on the sides of their heads are working just fine. But their spiritual ears are deaf. Why? Why is this? Why can't they hear? Because their spiritual father is Satan. They are descendants of the devil. They're, they're thoroughly enslaved to their original sin in Adam. And so by nature, they want to carry out the devil's desires instead of God's. They are allergic to the truth because their spiritual father is a liar as well as a murderer. They're not born of God, therefore they can't hear or do God's word. As I reread verses 43 to 47, notice how Jesus highlights their spiritual inability, their utter spiritual inability. They are totally incapable of seeing or hearing or accepting the truth. Verse 43, why do you not understand my speech? He knows the answer. Because you are not able to listen to my word or hear my word, you are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources or nature for he is a liar and the father of it but because I tell the truth you do not believe me or we could translate that and because I do not tell the truth you do not believe me which of you convicts me of sin and if I tell the truth why do you not believe me he who is of God hears God's words therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. The truths in this text are very simple, but they apply to all situations. They apply to everyone in every situation. Here's what I mean. You can lead with the truths in this paragraph when you are sharing the gospel with an unbeliever. You can use them when you are discipling a fellow Christian or talking about your faith with a brother or sister in Christ. You can use them to disciple your children. And you can use them to diagnose your own spiritual health. Perhaps that's where we should all begin, with our own spiritual health. These questions that Jesus raises here are the questions of life. We could say the Christian life, but they're, they're the questions of life. Every human being would do well to always be thinking about these questions. All believers especially would do well always to be asking them of ourselves 
and of one another. There are questions of eternal consequence. Do I love Jesus? Is there evidence in my life that I love Jesus? Does my conduct reflect that I am a child of God? Do I understand God's word? Am I spiritually able to hear it for what it is and do it? What is my response to God's word when I hear it read and preached? Am I walking in obedience? Not sinless obedience, but obedience nonetheless. Do I do the desires of God? Am I putting to death the desires of the devil that still linger inside of me? Do I believe what Jesus says? Does his word have a place in me, in my heart? Are my ears tuned in to the truth? Are there areas in my life where I'm turning a deaf spiritual ear to the clear words of Scripture? Do I speak the truth? Do I believe it, accept it, but, and then also speak it? Am I putting to death the satanic urge to lie and murder with my words? Have I submitted my heart and my mind and my body to do the things that God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ have said are true and right? This, this passage invites all of these hard, probing questions. And we can sum all of them up with one question. In response to the cross of Christ that saved me from my sins, am I taking up my cross and denying myself and living as a true disciple of Jesus? Let's pray and ask for God's help to do this. Father, we thank you for these simple truths that convict us, but also encourage us and give us life. We confess, though, that we need your help, your ongoing power to enable us to live as your children, as those who are born of God. And so continue to work in us, continue to have your way in our lives by the power of your spirit working in us and through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ by which we've been saved. Amen.